I believe that one of the greatest flaws of the human spirit is the quest for independence and self-sufficiency. We're proud of the ideology of the self-made man, rugged individualism, and doing things on our own without the help of others. And that really flies in the face of biblical theology. For in order for a person to be saved, one must become humble and realize that human works are insufficient to save us. We must confess our sins and spiritual helplessness and seek God's forgiveness through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only then that we have the right perspective of life and begin to learn that God is sufficient to meet all of our needs. This was Jacob's major problem in life. He desired to obtain blessing from God, but he felt short of trusting God to graciously supply those blessings. And we have seen his scheming and his cunning and planning to possess a birthright and blessing, even though God had already promised those things to him. We have seen him working to acquire a wife, wealth, and inheritance. It took 20 years of his life before he finally admitted that God was responsible for all the things that he had and that God could protect him from his enemies. But Jacob is still not where he needs to be spiritually. He still needs to be weaned from that self-sufficiency to God-sufficiency. This man left the promised land as Jacob, the heel-snatching deceiver who used his own schemes to obtain what God would have freely given to him. Jacob cannot now return to the land in the same way that he left it. He must become a different man who depends solely upon the Lord as his sufficiency. And that is what this chapter is all about, Genesis 32. Jacob does not so much struggle with God. It is God who must struggle with Jacob so that he may become Israel. In our walk with God, we must learn the same lesson voiced by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning, as we look again into the life of Jacob, that you'll help us to realize that If you're sufficient for all of our needs, you don't really need our help. And Lord, we pray you would uh, remove from us any sense of spiritual self-sufficiency, even as you did Jacob, that we might learn to live solely in your care and uh, trusting in your sufficiency to meet all our needs. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. As we approach this scene in Jacob's life, we're going to see a kind of a back and forth movement between faith in self and faith in God. Jacob is struggling with his own nature of self-reliance, and he cannot change it until God comes to him 
and wrestles with him. And the first thing we want to see here as we approach this passage is in the first two verses. And that is that God often reminds us of his sufficiency. Now we've seen this already. If we just back up one verse, we, re, we remember that Jacob and Laban met together for one last time and they agreed to separate and they made a covenant with each other. And Laban departs and he returns to his place. And now Jacob is going to move forward on his way to the land of Canaan. And Jacob had followed the Lord's directive to leave Laban, to leave Aram, and go to Canaan. He did so secretly because he feared Laban might try to to harm him, change his attitude, and take everything back. And there were two important points from that encounter. First of all, God intervened on behalf of Jacob when he came to Laban in that dream, And he proved that he was sufficient to protect Jacob from his enemies. Also, Jacob acknowledged from all that God's provision and God's protection as he responded to Laban's actions. So he is aware that God has kept his word and provided much more than he even needs. Yet Jacob still has not come to the place of completely trusting the Lord. Now, as Jacob goes on his way, we have another instance here where God is really revealing his sufficiency to Jacob. When he comes on his way, we're told in verse 1, the angels of God met him. Now, does that remind you of a previous incident in Jacob's life? You remember that when he fled from Esau and he left Canaan, The Lord came to him in a dream. And what did he see? He saw the angels of God ascending and descending on a stairway between earth and heaven. And it's interesting that the only two places in the Bible where this phrase, the angels of God, are located is here. So that connects these two things together. Now, in his dream, God promised that he would be with Jacob and bless him. And God, so far, has fulfilled his word over the last two decades, brought him to this place where he again sees the angels of God. So it seems to me that God's purpose, again, would be benevolent. The angels of God represent God's power to protect and provide and that he will be with Jacob on his return, even as he was on his escape. So uh, what then does Jacob really have to fear? Because he sees this, and he names the place after what he sees. He names the place Mahanium. Now what does that mean? That means a double camp, or two camps. And this concept of two camps or two companies is going to follow through in our story here. And they probably represent Jacob's camp as he sees the group that God has given him and the camp of heaven, the angelic camp. uh, And these are the two camps he's referring to, the heavenly one and the earthly one. And the question is, on which camp will Jacob rely? Now, this is a reminder to Jacob that God is still with him, 
that there's more to this world than the material and the natural. His sufficiency does not need to be in himself, but in God, whose heavenly messengers do God's bidding on behalf of his people. So he's reminded of this as he comes back toward Canaan. And the Lord reminds us of this truth throughout all of Scripture. Our sufficiency for all things does not reside in ourselves, but in God. Now, let's go on in the next section here, where we find, we learn that God will test us to see where our sufficiency lies. Now, Jacob knows that if he's going to go back home, he's got to make amends with his brother Esau. And that's what he appears to be doing in the next few verses here. And his initial address to Esau is given in verses 3 through 5. <clears throat> Excuse me. He trusts his messengers, incidentally, uh, same word as angels, uh, to go to Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, and tell uh, uh, Esau that he is coming after these two decades. And it's apparent that Esau has done well. He, he has moved to the region of Edom. He has subdued that land. And uh, these names, again, remind us, they recall to us the previous incidents that uh, caused Jacob and Esau to separate ways. Seir means hairy, like Esau, and Edom means red, reminding us of the red stew, which Jacob used to manipulate his brother. Now, Jacob sends these messengers to inform Esau of his arrival. Uh, he tells them what to say to him, that he's acquired much wealth. He comes as no threat to Esau. He's not going to try to take Esau's possession. And his desire is to find grace in the eyes of his brother. Favor means grace. And note also how Esau is to be addressed. Not as my servant, but as my Lord. And Jacob himself is the servant who comes to meet the Lord. So that's a reversal of the birth oracle, uh, which said the elder will serve the younger. So Jacob is showing humility here as he goes about reconciling with Esau, which is the right thing to do. But the messengers return with bad news. And verse 6 says, they came back to Jacob. They tell him, we came to your brother. He also is coming to meet you. And he's got 400 men with him. So uh, the narrative is kind of ambiguous here. We don't know what went on. We don't know if they even actually met physically with Esau or they just saw him coming and turned around and went back to warn Jacob. That seems to be what may have happened uh, because later on, Jacob tells the servants what to do, what to say. They may not even gotten to that point in this first uh, uh, interview, if you will. So Jacob assumes the worst and he's got good reason to. If he thinks back to when uh, they last parted, the last things he will remember that his brother said is that he's going to kill Jacob. So he takes things uh, in the worst way 
And we really can't blame him when we think about the past. He says in verse 7, So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him, the flocks and herds and camels, into two camps, two hosts, two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company, which is left, will escape. Now we've got to think back. Esau, or excuse me, Jacob has seen another camp. He's seen the camp of the angels. But instead of thinking about that, he takes his camp and makes his camp into two camps. So that's where he's thinking right now to escape this situation. All right? And as usual, Jacob always has a contingency plan. He always has a plan B. He's always thinking what's going to happen and uh, how will uh, he best benefit. So he breaks up his people, his belongings into two camps, and this is his reasoning off the bat. He said, and this probably is going on in his head, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, at least the other company will have time to escape and get away. So he's thinking right off the bat, there's no way I can get out of this totally. So I'm going to divide my people up, and that would be the human thing to do. And if he gets to this people first, these will get away, or vice versa. So that's his plan. And humanly speaking, that might have been prudent, but so far, he doesn't take into account God's camp. How often do we follow the same pattern? Something comes into our life that causes us to be afraid, to be anxious, and what do we do? We devise some kind of a plan of escape, some kind of a way to work things out, and our first response is like Jacob's. What am I going to do? What can I do? Instead of thinking about, well, you know what? The Lord knows all about this, and he can help me out. But this time, it seems like Jacob takes a step of faith. Now, his plan comes up first, but then he does take it to God. And so we find here in verses 9 through 21, in fearful situations, we should turn to the Lord and trust God's sufficiency. So in verses 9 through 12, we see Jacob calling upon the Lord for deliverance. Have we seen that in Jacob's life up to this point? No. He has not been a man of prayer. We have not seen him calling upon God in the stance of prayer. So this is the first time uh, he directly addresses the Lord in prayer. It's the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. He had vowed to make the Lord his God on his safe return home, and now it seems he addresses God in fulfillment of that vow. So what does he say? Let's take a look at this. In verse 9, Jacob addresses God as the God of his fathers. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. But then what does he say? He says, the Lord, all caps. So that means Yahweh, the personal name of God, the covenant name of God, and God passed along the covenant promise as Lord. 
So he addresses him as Lord and calls upon him to help him in this situation. And as he prays, he acknowledges his unworthiness. And that's a good attitude. He says, uh, again, he reminds the Lord that he's done what he said. You said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I'll deal well with you. So he's reminding God of his promise to deal well with him. And then Jacob says, I'm not worthy of the least of the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. So there's some humility uh, in Jacob's life. So he's taking this little step of faith as he comes to the Lord after he's already made his contingency plan, but he wants the Lord to deliver him in that situation. And uh, as he admits the Lord's kindnesses, the Lord's loving acts towards him. The word mercy there means loving kindness or God's uh, loving acts and his faithfulness. And Jacob realizes that he hasn't deserved any of this. He also mentions God's truth. And he recognizes that the truth of God uh, has been revealed to him. God has been revealing himself and what he's like to Jacob. He has shown himself to be a God who keeps his word. Uh, he's capable of providing for his people and protecting them in times of danger. And Jacob mentions that he crossed the Jordan the first time with nothing but his staff, and now he is ready to cross it again, and he's got these two companies. He's got, he's got more than he really needs or could even dream of. So uh, as he prays, these are all good thoughts coming out. And then in verse 11, he petitions the Lord. He confesses his fear. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Isaac, for I fear him, lest he attack me and the mother with the children. In other words, he's just going to totally wipe me out. So he's got a, a, a good fear here. Uh, something that we would probably all have felt in the same circumstances. Uh, but uh, he has to realize that even uh, if his plan succeeds, it's not sufficient to rescue everyone and everything from the hand of Esau. So he needs the Lord to rescue him, to deliver him. And the base of, of his request is God's own word as he closes in verse 12. For you said, I will surely treat you well. And make your descendants of the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So in these two instances, he's saying, you promised to treat me well, to bless me. And he closes with the same thought here, trusting that part of God's blessing is going to be to protect him from his brother. And one of God's purposes in bringing stressful times into our lives is to get us to rely on him. In Jacob's case, he was reaping what he sowed. If he had treated Esau right in the first place, this never would have happened. And sometimes we get ourselves into a jam, just like uh, Jacob did. Uh, but even in those situations, we can still come to the Lord and ask for his help. 
Whatever the situation might be, the Lord wants us to confess our fears to him, to call upon him to deliver us out of those distressing circumstances. Now, Jacob's beginning to learn the value of trusting in God's sufficiency to overcome circumstances in life, but then it seems he reverts to another contingency plan. So let's take a look here to see what goes on next. Because if God is our sufficiency, he doesn't really need our help. Now, verse 13 tells us what Jacob then does after the prayer. So we have Jacob's plan before the prayer, Jacob's plan after the prayer, and neither one of them seem to indicate to us 100% trust in God. Maybe it's kind of a 50-50 situation. So we're told here that Jacob takes from his flocks and his herds an impressive array of animals as a gift to his brother Esau. 550, I think, in number. And this alone would have made someone very wealthy. It does show us that Jacob is willing to give rather than to receive. And perhaps he desires to be a blessing to his brother from whom he stole the blessing. So in this sense, he's trying again uh, to make amends. Now, Jacob instructs his servants how he wants them to approach Esau. Verse 16, um, uh, he had delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and he said, pass over before me and put some distance between each group. And he commanded the first one to say, when Esau comes and he asks you all these questions, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? You're supposed to say, they are your servant Jacob's. It's a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he's also behind us. So there again, he's showing deference to his brother. He's putting himself in the servant place and his brother in the Lord place, again reversing uh, the actuality of what God has already ordained. But he's doing this in a sense of humility and preservation and hoping to later appease his brother's anger. Now, down in verse 20, we have Jacob's motivation. And again, he's probably thinking this in his mind. In the second part of verse 20, for he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. All right. So Jacob is being driven by fear. He's being driven by guilt over how he treated his brother. He's prayed for the Lord's deliverance. And maybe he thinks this is the best way now to move forward. And uh, underneath, though, he wants to appease his brother. And there's really kind of almost a sense that he's buying his forgiveness. Now, the verb to appease here is elsewhere translated to atone. And that means to pacify, to cover the face or make a covering for wrong committed. 
Later on, the nation of Israel will have to atone for their sins before God by offering up sacrifices. So the idea here is to wipe away Esau's anger by all these gifts so that Jacob can then meet him face to face. And there's a sense here that Jacob, because of his fear and because of perhaps his guilt in how he's treated his brother, is not able to lift up his face. He's kind of bowing his face down because the meaning of the verb to accept me means to lift up the face. So if he can somehow appease the anger of Esau, then Esau will come and uh, by forgiveness be able to lift up the face of his brother Jacob and they can look at each other eye to eye. So Jacob wants to be right with his brother. He's got a plan to do that. He's kind of half trusting God there to help him. But if he really believes that God can take care of this situation, why does he feel like he has to appease his brother? And why does God later have to come as the story moves forward and wrestle with him about this whole issue? So Jacob's still not at the place where self-sufficiency is replaced by God's sufficiency. Now we've heard the adage, Pray as though everything depends upon God and then work as though everything depends upon you. But is that not giving way to the same thing that Jacob was doing here? That there's some need for my sufficiency in this whole situation. Now, perhaps there are times where we should pray and then we should prepare for the worst. But this really wasn't one of those times. God wants Jacob to fully trust him in the situation and show him that uh, God is really sufficient to meet all his needs, and he doesn't need uh, your help or mine in doing so. Well, that brings us then to the, the apex of this whole narrative, and really the turning point of Jacob's life. And this shows us that God will break our self-sufficiency so that he is our sufficiency. And God comes and wrestles with Jacob at the brook Jabbok in verses 22 to 29. So we're told that night, verse 22, he arose and he took his two wives, his female servants, his 11 sons, he crossed over the fort of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. So it seems that Either he helped them get over and came back or he just sent them so he would be alone there on the other side of the river. And we're told in verse 24 that Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So Jacob is at Jacob and he's wrestling with somebody. What's interesting here is that this is a, a Hebrew play on sound because the brook in Hebrew is Yabuk. Jacob's name is Yaakob and wrestle is Yaabek. So God is wrestling with Jacob at the Jabbok and there's a change that's going to take place. And this link uh, 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 puts together the setting of the river 
with the main action of wrestling, and then the main participant, Jacob. Now, also, this is the only passage in the Bible where this verb for wrestling occurs. And it comes from a root that means dust. And abak means to pound or to make small, literally to dustify. Through this wrestling, Jacob will be made small. His self-sufficiency will be removed. As a result, he'll be renamed Israel in order that Israel may become as numerous as the dust of the earth. So that is significant as well. All right, Jacob's all alone. Family's gone, possessions gone, servants gone. And there he is assailed by an adversary. And Jacob first perceives this opponent to be a man. And this man comes to him. Jacob doesn't go to uh, the man. The man comes to him to start wrestling. So what's going through Jacob's mind? Was this an assassin sent by his brother Esau to take his life? Would he feel like he's fighting there for his own life? So these two figures wrestle for the remainder of the night. And his assailant is not able to prevail against Jacob, whom we know is physically very strong. So what does he do? Well, verse 25 says, Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, Jacob, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, in gym class, we used to have to do a little bit of wrestling. And I'll guarantee, if you had your hip out of joint, you would have lost the match. I don't know. I don't care who you were fighting against. Because it would be very painful, and you cannot use your hip to pivot uh, and to control your, your body with. So as they're wrestling, the assailant touches him. Now that word touch is also interesting because it can mean to strike a blow and uh, the connotation may mean to uh, blow for harm, hit, hit someone with, with harm intent to injure them, to molest them. So Jacob is touched in such a way that his physical strength is taken away. He's no longer able to maneuver. Uh, again, Jacob's strength, on which he depended so much, is removed from the situation. Now the day is breaking, and Jacob's opponent pleads to be set free. But Jacob, even in this handicapped condition, will not let go of the assailant. He tightly grasps him, And he won't let him go until he receives a blessing. Isn't that typical of Jacob? He wants a blessing. But Jacob, I think, is starting to figure out this can't be an ordinary man because of what happened to his hip muscle. Now, the man then asked Jacob who he is. Verse 27. What is your name? Jacob has to respond. And this is very significant as well because Jacob 
is forced to recall who he is. He is Jacob. He is the heel snatcher. He is the deceiver. He is a self-sufficient man who will do anything for a blessing. He's forced to recall what he's been like for his whole life, even from the womb. But at this point, where he's forced to think about the meaning of his name, and where he's clinging to God and praying for a blessing, face-to-face, if you will, he's asked his name, he has to think about his name, which is so unworthy, but the man says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. He's no longer going to be called by his old name, his old character. Why? Well, he's been struggling with God. He's been struggling with men. He has prevailed to a certain extent. We think of his past life. Well, he prevailed over his brother Esau. He prevailed over his father. He prevailed over Laban. He finally prevailed over his wives in the home. He prevailed by hook or by crook, by whatever means he could, through his own personal sufficiency and strength. But now that's all changed. God took away that that dependence on his strength. And the only thing he can do is cling to God and pray and plead. And as he does that, He prevails with God as well. And he must realize his real struggle through all these years has been with God, with whom he now fights face to face in this all-night contest. And he may ask the name of his opponent in verse 29, but I think he already knows who the opponent is. And he's been taught a valuable lesson. One commentator wrote, The man who prevails through decisive and prudent action in strength now prevails through prayer and weakness. And according to Hosea's commentary, Hosea mentions this struggle. Hosea said, Jacob took his brother by the heel in the womb And in his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. So he's showing his dependency upon the Lord and not on himself. Jacob was brought to the place where he could no longer operate in the power of the flesh. He could only cling to God and plead with him face to face for his blessing. Another commentator wrote, when God touched the strongest sinew of Jacob the wrestler, it shriveled, and with it, Jacob's persistent self-reliance. So Jacob now has a new name, Israel. And Israel means God fights, or he fights with God. You can take it either way. But we see that God came to, uh, to, to Jacob 
God wrestled with him, God fought with him in order to remove his self-sufficient attitude. And when Jacob could not prevail physically, he had to prevail spiritually. He had to ask God and cling to God and weep until God gave him the blessing. The blessing is going to involve deliverance from Esau as he had previously prayed, but also as he renames this place, uh, his deliverance from seeing God and surviving the occasion. And in the future, as Israel becomes a nation, it too will prevail with God and men only as it clings to God in faith and obedience. When she does not do that, she will fail and be defeated. Well, Jacob then commemorates the battle scene. In verse 30, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. <clears throat> Peniel means face of God, marking his struggle with the Lord there. Of course, Jacob did not literally wrestle with God in his glorious form, but in a manifestation, probably as uh, Hosea told us, the angel of the Lord, who can appear in the form of a man. But it was face-to-face in the sense of a direct communication with the Lord and a real physical struggle with him. Jacob and Israel would forever remember this place by giving it this name. Jacob is left behind at the Jabbok. And Israel emerges at Peniel. Jacob emerged from this struggle a changed man. No longer self-sufficient, but God-sufficient. And the dawning of a new day kind of uh, represents the dawning of a new life. And the limping leg symbolizes a different man. And Jacob learned that when I am weak, then I am strong. He had the assurance of God's personal blessing on him now through this personal face-to-face confrontation. He also had the assurance that we'll see later God would deliver him from his brother Esau. So we learn a lot of good things about sufficiency here, don't we? The Lord reminds us constantly of his sufficiency, his grace time and again through his word, through sermons, through answered prayer, through many experiences of our past life. And yet how often uh, do we go back and be like Jacob when the next thing comes up? God will also take us through trials that will trust our, excuse me, test our sufficiency. Are we going to trust ourselves and our plans or are we going to trust God? Are we going to try to muddle through on our own or rely on God to be our guide and our help. Yes, there are times we should be prudent, we should be wise, we should plan, but those always are to be under uh, submission to God's purposes and guided by God's word and God's promises. 
And in the end, we have to have faith that God will work things out according to his will and his timing. And like Jacob, we must recognize our own inadequacy and helplessness. That even our areas of strength may be a hindrance to our reliance on the Lord. And we must come to the end of self-reliance and totally depend upon the Lord to make us what he wants us to be and bless us as he sees fit. Rather than fighting with the Lord, we have to learn to submit to him. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for your word. We're thankful, Lord, for uh, these stories of old that teach us so many things today. Help us, Lord, to be not self-sufficient, but God-sufficient. Remove from us those things that would prevent us from fully trusting in you as you removed uh, from Jacob his strength and his self-reliance. Lord, it's so easy for us to uh, depend upon ourselves to make plans that really are not your plans. Forgive us when we do that. And help us, Lord, in, third, uh, in turn to uh, start out praying to you and trusting you that we might end up a different person. Bless us with these thoughts this morning, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.